with Star Wars, I knew what I was up against. At that point in time, what I wanted to create was impossible, with special effects. I had no idea what I was going to do. Your destiny lies along a different path. Trust me, folks. They had to figure out how to make it cinematic. It had a lot of movement on the screen. But there was a lot of resistance, whether it's money or how to use technology that moves people. Why don't you take a look around? You know what they're up against? Who's the more foolish? The fool? Tell me you want to be. Or the fool who follows it. Would like to volunteer. You're listening to Talking Bay 94, the only Star Wars podcast dedicated to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. My name is Brandon Winerdy, and this is a special bonus episode of Talking Bay 94, and we actually don't really have uh, me personally interviewing any cast, crew, or creators today, but I wanted to take this bonus episode as a time to talk about a trip that I made last week, Thursday, June 27th, 2019, to L.A., Uh, to attend the Academy's Galactic Innovation Star Wars and Rogue One panel. This was just a dream come true, and I'll try to take you through, at least chronologically, how that day went and what what we experienced. And I've also included some snippets of my favorite panels and some of the insights that came out of it. Um, But let me start at the very beginning, which was a few weeks ago. I was on Facebook, tooling around, um, and actually in the Blast Point Super Chill group, which I'll give a plug to here, is one of my favorite places for Star Wars on the internet. A guy named Dustin, who I was able to meet actually later on, spoiler alert, posted in the group about this event that the Academy, Academy Awards, uh, was putting on in LA in a few weeks. Uh, This panel was great. It was celebrating the 40 years of Star Wars. It was highlighting the Dykstra Flex, blah, blah, blah. Awesome. And the list of guests was incredible, right? It was John Dykstra and Dennis Muren and John Knoll, uh, Harrison Ellenshaw and Richard Edlin, two of our previous guests. Uh, but then the the two names that really stuck out to me uh, was Ben Burt, who's been my hero <laughs> for, for years and years and years. I wrote him fan letters when I was growing up. I uh, cold called his office one time. Please don't tell him that. I was too scared. I left him a message, I think. But... And then Marshall Lucas, who, again, one of the unsung heroes of Star Wars, one of the people that made those original Star Wars movies work, uh, with her deafness in both editing and also understanding the heart of story. And Marsha, of course, hasn't talked in public about Star Wars since probably 1985, uh, since the Skywalking book from Pollock. And then there were, a couple years ago, there was a video of her. But this was such an incredibly rare opportunity, not only to hear her, but to hear her in person and hear her talk directly about the movie that she won an Academy Award for editing. Um, so I, I bought a ticket. I bought two tickets, actually, without thinking. Without thinking that it was in LA on a Thursday and I live in Dallas, Texas. Spoiler alert. Um, So after that initial moment of panic, seeing Marshall Lucas's name, buying two tickets, the event sold out. (laughs) And so then I was in a, a situation where I had to make a decision. And that decision was use up these airline points that I've been saving up. Uh, work it out with my boss and, and kind of figure out how I can make it you know happen with work. And then before I knew it, I was boarding a flight to LA at noon on Thursday in Dallas, uh, landing at around one o'clock LA time and kind of on my way for this thing that I, I didn't know if it was gonna be worth it or not. I didn't know if, you know, Marsha was going to cancel or if Ben Burt was going to cancel or if this event was going to be anything. But spoiler alert, it was everything. Uh, I've been to celebrations, I've been to panels, I've watched every single special feature and anything that you can imagine and this was so special and and so unique and the amount of time and effort that the Academy put into making this a special event and what the presenters brought which doesn't really translate to an audio podcast so I cut a lot of the visual elements out but they brought slides and personal pictures and personal anecdotes and really just painted this picture of ILM as this scrappy group in 1976 trying to make a movie and then how that transitioned to then 40 years later uh, making Rogue One using those same elements was an incredible night and something that I'll never forget. So uh, I'll just take you chronologically through everything. Um, I've included some snippets of my favorite panels and thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94. This is a special bonus episode, Galactic Innovations, Star Wars and Rogue One, Brandon's ill-advised but ultimately successful Los Angeles trip. Take me to counters. Meet number 17 and you are headed to the board. 
Samuel Goldwyn Theater. Actually, uh, I kind of had a another panic mode where uh, I had brought my work computer, obviously, because I had to do work. It was Thursday, um, and they actually wouldn't let me into the theater with the bag. And in that bag was actually like a microphone that I had, just in case you know I was able to interview someone afterwards or whatever it was. And so all of that kind of went out the window immediately. Um, and so I was almost kind of forced to, to enjoy the event just as, as, a, as a bystander and not kind of working. So after an incredible intro and sizzle reel, uh, which wasn't played on the live stream, but I put a snippet of the audio to start this episode, we were then introduced to Richard Edlund, who of course has been on this show before episode 19. So please go back and listen to episode 19 if you want. Academy Award winner, obviously visual effects legend, kind of going through the initial steps of not only the Dykstra Flex, but also those first shots for Star Wars when we can take a listen to that. If that's not enough, he's also a founding member of the Academy's Scientific and Technical Council. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Richard Edlund. Ultimately, what brings us here tonight is a generous donation by Lucasfilm of the Dykstraflex camera, which was built to shoot miniatures for the first Star Wars film. This was the most sophisticated motion control camera built at that time to accomplish the demands of George Lucas's vision for Star Wars. The Science and Technology Council determined that this was not only a valuable asset worth refurbishment, but it deserved an evening built around it. So tonight we're going to honor the technology and advancements in filmic tools and techniques, comparing the analog tools used on the first Star Wars to the Rogue One's almost, almost exclusive use of digital tool sets. On your way out of the theater, you'll be able to see the Dykstra Flex. That was the camera built to produce the dynamic and realistic, realistic action shot that George wanted to see for Star Wars. And this was long before the digital age we're in today. We had to create a motion control system that simulated a real camera in a miniature environment which could produce believable shots that appeared to have been done with a normal 35-millimeter camera. Further, our camera would need to move during the shots, as did the models as they would, sp they would appear to zoom by. So there would often be natural motion blur, and that was there, and if that weren't there, the shots would, look, would stutter and would, look not, would not look believable even to a 10-year-old. In the days before our invention, those kind of shots were made by shooting successive still frames, moving models by hand between each. But those frames would not have the crucial motion blur, and so the resulting action would appear to stutter. Motion blur was our vital secret and its presence caused the audience to cheer the realistic and dynamic magic of Star Wars visual effects, such as the famous and seemingly endless Star Destroyer in pursuit that opened the movie. The shot was made with a four-foot-long four miniature it was a project that George was paranoid about for months, and he wanted, he wanted us to build this, mic, this magnificent miniature on the side of the wall of the, of, the sh of the studio. And I had to remind him a couple of times that we only had a 40-foot track, George. <laughs> so one day I decided to try an experiment. I had, I had Grant trick out the bottom of the, of the Star Destroyer, and I would try an, try an experiment. It worked. Kiri Hart was the moderator for the entire event, which was great, a former story group, obviously. Uh, she was also a huge ILM proponent and supporter and fan, and so it was great hearing her throughout, kind of interjecting and, and being the voice of the audience. Uh, up next, of course, since this night was based around the Dykstra Flex, um, John Dykstra came up, which was obviously <laughs> incredible to hear him talk and hear him explain the reasonings behind the Dykstra Flex and also, you know, the purposes that it served in the actual production of the original Star 
Star Wars. The blur effect itself is, is taken into a lot of detail, so definitely strap in. Are you guys ready? All right, let's do this. Our first speaker teamed with George Lucas and Gary Kurtz to establish Industrial Light and Magic and assemble the creative group that designed and built the miniatures and camera systems used to create the Oscar-winning visual effects for Star Wars. Please welcome John Dykstra. Thank you. Okay, so we had a great time making that first movie. Back in 1975, I received a script, The Star Wars. Along with it came an invitation to talk to George Lucas and Gary Kurtz. The script was great, and Ralph McQuarrie's production art brought it to life. Star Wars had dogfights with spaceships and things blowing up. What could possibly be better? George and I spent a lot of time hand-flying and talking about existing techniques to produce the sequences. His primary concern was that the visuals keep people on the edge of their seats. In my youthful exuberance, I said, yes, we can do that. <laughs> Fortunately, George and Gary believed me. We had 350 plus shots to do in roughly 23 months and about a million and a half dollars. Back then, we actually had to put real things in front of the camera and photograph them. <laughs> We were constrained by photography in the physical world, the size of the lens and the camera, depth of focus, the size and the speed of the subject, all influenced the process. We also had to use real explosions. Not a bad deal. We were going to have to improve existing techniques, invent some new ones, and turbocharge the process to get the work done in the time we had. We had to photograph miniatures at slow frame rates to make them appear to move fast. We needed a small f-stop to keep the entire miniature in focus, resulting in long exposures per frame. We needed to move the camera freely in a non-linear way to capture the fluid air-to-air -air feel of the dogfight sequences. We had to eliminate the stutter that comes from stop-motion photography. And we needed to repeat these complex moves repeatedly and precisely in order to photograph the multiple elements that made up each finished shot. At the time, these nonlinear moves could only be made using stop motion. The camera and the subject were static during exposure. The lack of motion blur caused the image to stutter when it was projected. Our camera and subject had to move during exposure to create the motion blur that occurs in real-time photography. That was where the computer-controlled camera system came into play. Motion control allowed us to make slow frame rate, continuous moves with accelerations and decelerations that were precisely repeatable. Most of the shots were too complex to do in, as in-camera composites, and as a result, we needed to complete our shots optically. We chose to use the larger 8-perf negative of VistaVision to compensate for the quality loss that comes from optical duplication. All the cameras, optical printers, and film viewing equipment had to be based on the 8-perf film format. That meant new optics for everything. We were going to use blue screen matting for our miniature elements, which required perfecting blue screen extraction and, exp and uh, composite techniques. It also meant building fluorescent blue screens with special phosphors that put out light similar to the color of the screen. This made them much more efficient, and the diffuse light source made a consistent screen brightness. We needed miniatures that would hold up to close photographic scrutiny, but also be small enough to allow the size change required by their speed on a reasonably sized stage. The shots required the ships to go from a distant dot to a frame-filling close-up. The bigger the model that we used, the bigger the stage had to be to get that size change. Because of the schedule, we were going to have to shoot multiple stages, which meant duplication of much of the equipment and the miniatures. There needed to be a complex editorial department to handle and track the thousands of individual film elements that went into the final shots. We had a unique editor. <laughs> We had to build 8-perf moviolas and projectors. We were going to build the equipment, produce the shots, hopefully within schedule and budget. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so I suggested that we build a visual effects studio. <laughs> Why not? Based on my time with Doug Trumbull and my experience at IURD in Berkeley, we had a good idea of what we needed. But to, splash, to flesh out the particulars, I needed a team of innovators. With a limited budget, we needed participants who were driven more by their love of the work than by the paycheck. Jim Nelson, 
the guy who was the producer in charge of the visual effects effort, found a warehouse near Van Nuys Airport, and we started putting together the team that was going to make this happen. I first called on the guys that were my friends from the time that I spent at Trumbull Film Effects, Dick Alexander, Bill Short, and Don Trumbull, to design and build the cameras and equipment. Grant McCune to build the miniatures, Bob Shepard to be the head of production, and I asked Al Miller, who worked at IURD in Berkeley, to design and build the electronics for the motion control and camera systems. Richard Edlund came on as lead camera, and Robbie Blaylock to head the optical department. With these people working on the design and construction, we turned to fleshing out the studio. Adam Beckett, lead animator, Mary Lind, editorial, Joe Johnson for storyboards and miniature designs, and Harrison Ellenshaw for matte paintings. A lot of these people came from the movie industry, but many came from unlikely backgrounds. Grant had been a hospital lab tech. Bill had been a social worker, for good reason. <laughs> and Bob was a designer and sandal maker? Okay. All these people had talents uniquely suited to our project, and most important, they were happily willing to join us in what looked to be a very challenging endeavor. We named it Industrial Light and Magic. I chose to use friends wherever possible because I knew that communication between the departments was going to be critical to getting this done quickly. These people were all going to be involved in the design of the equipment and the processes, as well as the execution of the shots. Because of the visual effects business outside of the studios, it was pretty much a case of everyone does everything. It wasn't unusual for a cameraman to build a rig or for a model maker to understand the photographic requirements of miniature lighting. As a result, all the department heads knew enough about the nature and needs of all the other departments for their efforts to solve rather than create problems for their collaborators. The camera systems were still being completed and improved even as the first ship elements were being shot on stage. Equipment and miniatures were constantly being modified to suit the special needs of any given shot. John Erland, a model maker, was exploring new balloon screen technology for model mounts and had a new trick for every shot. Maybe too many tricks. <laughs> there was no restriction as to who could do what. The department heads were also responsible for, for populating their departments with people who could collaborate in this unconventional environment. From the studio's point of view, this was a huge task. We were going to spend half of the budget building prototype equipment, and those tools weren't going to be finished until halfway through the schedule. Far too late to take another route if any part of the complex contrivance failed. On top of that, almost no one outside of the building understood what we were doing. <laughs> it's always good. <laughs> Keep them in the dark. <laughs> Not everyone shared our enthusiasm for ILM's company culture. We didn't punch a time clock, and in the summer, when the temperature soared in the valley, we repurposed the hot tub full of cold water in the parking lot for a midday dip complete with a water slide made from a 727 escape uh, chute. <laughs> That's the shot. Okay. The studio didn't like this. Credit goes to George, Gary, and Jim for believing us and putting up with a huge amount of pressure that they received from the studio. Between the core group and those who joined us over the course of the production, we numbered less than 100 people. We had to design and build the facility and produce the visual effects. I wish I could name every one of them, but it would take too long. Take a look at the credit list, and you'll see many more names that you'll recognize. Every one of them put their heart and soul into the work. It was a perfect storm of talent and dedication. The people doing this kind of work were doing it because they loved it. And like many people that age, our work was our life, bordering on obsession. During the next year and a half, for most of us, the warehouse was our home. We were a family dedicated to proving the worth of our mutual invention. It's no small irony that George's script and this nascent group of ILMers were very much like the Rebel Alliance in the Star Wars story. A small band of allies who were launching an unconventional attack on a seemingly insurmountable problem. I personally consider it the most enjoyable and satisfying work experience in my career. We loved the work that we did, and I think somehow that showed up on the screen. The people were the magic in industrial light and magic. Thank you. Dennis Murin, of course, 
uh, ILM legend, visual effects legend, and his purpose in the show was to then take um, Richard Edlin and John Dykstra's visual effects work and then move us all the way to Rogue One's. And he pretty much gives a 10-minute spiel on the evolution of visual effects for 30 years, and it is absolutely incredible. You know, from young Sherlock Holmes to Jurassic Park to the prequels, he kind of covers everything very, very quickly and very, very well. What else can you ask for? He's won eight Academy Awards, including two for his work on The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Please welcome Dennis Muren. Wow, well, hello, everyone. Uh, that was exhausting, bringing back too many memories. I was mostly shooting nighttime, and it's just like, oh, God. Anyway, it's over a bit. Well, after Star Wars, uh, George made gobs of money, as we all know, and Hollywood did also, and they went on to uh, do a lot of films. Hollywood, and all over the place, they did the Superman films, Alien, Black Hole, Star Trek. There was so much going on. But there really wasn't any sort of, very little, except for what we had done, and what Trumbull was doing, very little computer stuff. There was some earlier motion graphic stuff uh, at Abel's going on, a little bit at a company called Scanimate, which I hadn't even heard of. Did a lot of stuff analog. And uh, George was kind of thinking about, well, maybe I should set up something or other to advance uh, or to keep the company going. He made a decision, I think, to continue going, make the additional films after this. So he invested or started up a group, uh, mainly started with Ed Capmull, that he called uh, the Lucasfilm Computer Division, or the graphics group was the group that did the CG, experimenting, seeing if there would be a future in CG that we might be able to use at ILM. And they also were, were developing stuff for sound editing, which of course happened digitally, Picture editing, which of course happened digitally. So many different things that was in that in that group have happened over, you know, and came to flourishing and are available now. You know, you can buy them for like hardly anything and use them on your iPad. After that, um, the group, the graphics group, got together and they were building more and more, starting to do stuff. They were doing software, and they also had an opportunity to do a sequence for the Star Trek. And this is all done uh, for it's, it's supposed to be a visualization, not actually photo real, of uh, a demonstration of a possibility that could happen to a planet where a planet could be born or created out of nothing. And this was all done based primarily on a lot of Lauren uh, Carpenter's fractal stuff that he had been working on for years and years and really understood it and loved it. And then a lot of other guys in the graphic group came together and managed to get it done. And uh, it came out really well in the film. And it's, you just haven't seen anything like it before. you know. And it's actually, in some ways, not as complicated as it looks. But that's the way math works. And I have no clue how they did it, but it was wonderful. Uh, so, and then also after that, we got, uh, or Last Starfighter came out, and that had some really, really neat work in it also. Didn't quite hold up to what we needed for the Star Wars films, but you could see there's a future going on there. So we were very interested in that. And the group got better and better as we were doing these shows, that, uh, you know, the Genesis effect, and then more time going by. So that in uh, 84, 85, they had an opportunity to do a show called Young Sherlock Holmes, and you may have seen this, and this is a CG, stained glass man, it works because it's a hallucination. It didn't have to be perfect, but if we could get something that looked startling, then that's what I wanted to put in this. I didn't want this to look like it could be done stop-mo, like a guy in a suit, like a cartoon or anything. My wife actually designed this with all these separate pieces that are not touching each other, and we added a bowing effect on each piece of the glass so it looks heavier, pushing out like it's aggressive. The uh, glass is all like an inch thick, which of course real stained glass isn't in a church or anything, but it helped give a force to that character. Uh, being a hallucination, you could kind of imagine anything. So uh, this was this got a lot of people really interested within the company. Things were looking neat. Outside people, more and more companies were interested in doing this kind of work and, and setting up. And George decided to sell the graphics group. So they went on and created Pixar, uh, spun off with George Jabbottom. Bottom. That was really a good thing, because they could then do what they wanted to do. What we wanted to do was more film effects. They wanted to do more animation stuff, so we set up our own graphics group. Uh, and it was really uh, great. George Joblov and uh, Doug Kay, who are around here somewhere, were some of the key people involved in setting that up. We built new equipment. We tried to get as much off-the-shelf stuff as we can, so within ILM, we had control of it. It wasn't like all in the minds of like just a few people or something, because the movie business 
is not like academia at all. You've got a deadline, you, it's gotta be done. It's, and there's always more than one thing to do, one way to do something, always. So you've gotta be open to all that sort of stuff. And the result of that, when we really we tried, did some wire removals and those worked out, other things like that, we had a show called Willow that had a chance to do like what we called the first sort of morphing based on a tech or on a paper that was at SIGGRAPH that John Noel found as still frames. And I thought, well, it'd be really great if we could do this as a movie translating or transferring from uh, an image from one character to another. The shape would change within it without any cutting. And uh, Doug Smythe did a lot of the work on the software of this. Okay, so these are, these are not CG images at all, but the, the morphing between the two scenes is CG. These were puppets made that we could distort. They were made robotically, but always pushed by humans, flexible so that we could make these shapes go sort of get, grow up or shrink down or extend the neck, whatever we needed to, to try to get the two figures to be in sort of the same volume as much as we could, so when we morphed them together, they didn't pop too much or look too sort of crazy. So it's a 2D effect, and that worked out pretty darn good too. Uh, Ron Howard directed it, and he was all excited uh, for the idea of getting something that didn't like cut from one mechanical effect to another mechanical effect to, uh, to uh, someone looking like, oh, look at that, but you don't see what he's looking at. We could do it like right on the screen, and that's something that I was always, always pushing for, to be able to see the result right in front of you. You know, it's like a magician or something. You know, don't take your eye away. See it, look for it. Of course, there's always cheating going on. <laughs> so after that, uh, Jim Cameron comes along, and he's doing this, the water weenie pseudopod from the abyss. <laughs> and he does it in such a way that he can cut it out of the film if it doesn't work. And uh, a couple of other companies had done tests, which looked pretty good. But we wanted, uh, but he, he was going to come up for a visit. I think he was in Seattle working on the diving stuff or something, stopping in San Francisco on the way down, down to see, uh, down back to LA. He stopped by, and the night before, Jay Riddle and I and a few other people, maybe John was there, had done a test overnight of a pseudo, of a snake creature moving around just as a quick shade. And he was so impressed that we wanted the job that much that he gave, us, gave it to us. He said he'd never worked with ILM because they were too big and were too cold. And he found out that the ILM people are just like he is. You know, they love to do the work. So we got that job, and this is what, and this just came out really great. This is the first time any Photoshop work was used in the film, and it was really for shooting the, the photographs on location that we use for the reflections and the refractions. And there's all sorts of cheating going on in here that we discovered actually on Sherlock. The reflection through it, uh, should be inverted, but it isn't inverted because it looks better. The reflections, uh, or that, this is the, the refraction through it, I mean. The reflections are cheated. Everything is cheated to make it look more like what you would think it should look like. Because when we actually rendered something, it was too confusing to look at. And you, you can't do that. It's like what, why George wanted to do all the panning shots of Star Wars. You've got to be able to understand what's going on. Uh, and you can't just scientifically rationalize, well, that's what it would look like there. We were cheating all the time in Star Wars. So you know, that's just something I picked up, and I, you, know, you always do that. So this came out great. So uh, the, what we needed, though, what we didn't have was the digital compositing. So we, had, uh, we needed to get that, and eventually we did solve that so we could input the film into a computer, manipulate it. We had enough software. We could write something to manipulate it however we wanted to, and then get back out again uh, onto motion picture film so we could cut it into the movie. And we solved it at this process, at this point. And the result of that, along with some great, great work, uh, was Terminator 2. Great people working on this. This is essentially is an image of Robert Patrick mapped onto a deflatable, or uh, you know, inflatable, whatever, you know, deformable 3D shape and comped in, but it's all done digitally, so there's no like little map lines or those kind of fake things that we're used to seeing, and it just sort of floored people. Uh, there's no motion capture, we didn't have it back then, it's all sort of hand wrote out, a lot of little morphing going on here, and this whole end sequence has got a lot of distorting done with Photoshop, painting actually from one image to another for a few frames. This scene, uh, actually pulling the uh, VCs in the, uh, or the CVs in the geometry to be able to extend the neck and everything like that, that was seen by most of the animators being way too hard to do, and Steve Williams just did it, had it in a day, and we got these great shape-changing things in there by thinking out of the box. You know, digital, great. Okay, so now you got that. So what is left? Well, it's what everybody wants to see. 
And Stephen uh, came along with this actually about two years earlier, and then when, it, when he decided to do it, he said, what, you know, what do you think? So uh, Steve Williams, Mark DePay, and Seven Fangmar did this test that just knocked everybody out because suddenly all that chatter that John was showing in his stuff of stop motion, you know, is gone. And you're looking at it, and it's just impossible, right? And that led, of course, to Jurassic, which changed everything. It's funny, they go from bright daylight to this dark, scary sort of look, but that's the flexibility, you know, of CG you can do. If you can imagine it, you can do it. And this was a much more dramatic, the original scene for that was not that dark or anything, but it looked great. Okay, that leads us to the next Star Wars uh, series, the prequels, and George, uh, his brain exploded with what he could do now. 3,000 shots or 2,000 shots, armies fighting, thousands of characters going on, two years to do it, you know, impossible, we'd never done anything like it. And, uh, but he kept saying, I believe in it. He said, I'll take the responsibility, just try it. And John was the main guy behind that, John Newell. I worked on it and a few other people, a few other hundred people. And we got that done too. So uh, that was in 99, I think. And then we come along to the Star Wars films, the later ones. And Ryan Johnson said, you know, briefly, he said, you know, I gotta, can we shoot models? I don't know about the CG stuff, can we shoot models? And I said, well, you know, there's a band, just the CG, and there's things that are maybe we can fix with models or so. So I took these four shots from Empire Strikes Back, and they're all beneath me. Probably all remember them. They're all shot with models, motion control, the Dykes reflexive you're seeing out there. I think I shot all those things. And the Walker, too. And I said, here's a test. We're going to add another CG sh uh, ship or Walker into it. And we put this up for Ryan to look at, and he said, oh, my God, you can do it. It looks fine. It doesn't look like a CG ship. It looks like it's the same one out there. It's like a model, the old ILM, the way I love it. You know, the lighting is all different from the way the CG guys light things. The models are made different. Everything is different to get to limit it to the real world physics and real world lighting and real world everything. And it just worked out great. So, and then this, and Rogue One was going on at the time, and a lot of this was applied then to uh, Garrett's Rogue One film, which is why part of the reason why that looks so great. And that's it. Oh. <laughs> Harrison Ellenshaw also got up on stage. This is just a small snippet of what he talked about since a lot of it was visual. Uh, one note that really bugged me, and it bugged people on the internet too, so I'm glad I wasn't the only one. A lot of the shots that he was explaining behind him on the big screen were actually shots from like the special editions and from the, the newer iterations of his original matte shots. And I, I felt kind of bad that he had to kind of talk through that. But overall, of course, uh, Mr. Ellen Shaw is, is such a gentleman and, and, and so kind. And he, he's been on this show, episode 18. Definitely check that out for a more detailed analysis of how he got started in the mat industry and his process behind it. But some of these shots are absolutely incredible. The, the big one, the one that got the most attention, was the smallest matte painting that he did, which, of course, is that little glint of a sand crawler in the original Star Wars movie. Take a listen to, to Harrison Ellen Shaw. Our next presenter in this parade of crazy awesomeness is someone who joined the Walt Disney Studios as a matte artist and went on to create matte paintings for Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back. Please welcome Harrison Ellenshaw. Well, that's a tough act to follow. Jeez, <laughs> I thought I was going to go first and then you know, build to the end. Well, that's editing. I'll, I didn't get a chance to put on my coat because Rose is going to kill me. I wasn't prepared. All right. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, it's such an honor to be here. It really is. It touches my heart. Uh, it's, those, you know, one day... These will be the good old days, but now we look back and we had no idea. I really had no idea. I had kind of fingers crossed. This was a long time ago, but I wasn't quite that young when I worked on Star Wars. So, <laughs> However, I grew up in a... Uh, in a, in a very artistic fa family, and my father, Peter Owenshaw, had won an Oscar for the effects in... Uh, 
in Mary Poppins. So this, I kind of knew what was going on, and I was so fortunate because in the early days at uh, Disney, they, every, everybody worked on Saturday, so I would go in into Disney and watch them put movies together, and I was fascinated. I thought one day maybe I should do that. Um, this is the first map painting in Star Wars, um, and it's the smallest map painting. Uh, here it is. Even C-3PO is surprised. He goes, that's tiny, jeez, what the heck? I mean, he makes a big deal out of it. You know, we're saved, but I wouldn't be too happy. It's pretty far away. Uh, it's kind of, kind of, and it has a nice glint on it, which I, I don't even remember putting that in, uh, because this is truly not an optical, and I'm just glad I didn't have to paint that much sand. Uh, there it is. <laughs> it still exists. It's up in the archives. Um, I didn't know that until about two years ago, and I was up there for something else, and they said, we, we're not sure what this is. <laughs> I said, well, give it to me. I'll be happy to take it. And, uh, the rest is uh, it's still there, thankfully. Um, uh, this uh, was one of the, one of the shots. And, and keep in mind that I really didn't, I didn't have a script. So I was making kind of, you know, stuff up from what I, I learned. And uh, the, I worked at nights at ILM in Van Nuys, and a lot of the, um, a lot of the uh, models were, uh, were locked up at night. Here's a, a portion of uh, Mose Eisley. Uh, again, eventually I went, and this is the, the latest version, but it's pretty close to my version. Uh, some of the elements are different, uh, and I didn't quite, there was VistaVision footage, actually running footage, of Death Valley. And when I duped it, uh, you know, rear projected it, it was pretty grainy. And, and so I thought, well, what the heck? Why don't I just go get a, a big uh, blow up, an enlargement of one of the frames? Because it was shot in VistaVision, it still held up pretty, pretty well. And, um, and then, uh, George and I had a little bit of a discussion about how the size of the buildings. And I said, well, it's so far away, they can't be, can't be too high. And he said, you know, he looked at me like, look, it's this is not real. This is Star Wars. You know, we're not shooting the San Fernando Valley from Mulholland Drive. <laughs> Get with the program, Harrison. Um, <laughs> there it is. It, 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 and again, it, it's, it's a composition that just works, and everything was magic on that show in so many ways. At the time, we didn't necessarily feel that way because it was, it, it looks easy, but it was hard. It was really hard. <laughs> there were a lot of sleepless nights. Will this work? You know, because you didn't have monitors. You had this thing called film, and you had to send it into this place called a laboratory where they would take your film and you would go home at night, pray they wouldn't scratch it, pray that it worked because you didn't have a monitor, and just hope for the best. Uh, so it was, it was pretty nerve-wracking. But that was, that's what ILM was about. It was like, you know, who, whoever could help, you helped out. There was, it was not a competitive atmosphere. So there you can see the, my original... Uh, I was, I, I look very young. Uh, <laughs> I'm kind of thinking, uh, and uh, not to be too glib, but it was a great opportunity for me because I was working at, at Disney at the time, also doing mappings for a film that I thought would win Academy Awards, would be a big hit. And I was going over at night to work on this, you know, B space movie. <laughs> as I say, with the, the monkey guy and then some other guy that looked like he was out of the Wild West. Uh, it just, it, it, yeah, okay, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I just so wanted to work on something that, uh, 
that wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to be a Disney artist forever. Well, the irony is now we come full circle and we're back to, uh, you know, now who owns 20th Century Fox? Yeah. Okay. Uh, enough of the editorializing. There you go. Thank you. When John Knoll got up on stage, it was an incredible way to hear him not only talk about the effects for Star Wars and the effects for Rogue One, but then working with Gareth Edwards. And he talks about it, but I want you to also visualize uh, some of the things that they were showing us, which was Gareth Edwards using virtual reality and using computer effects on set as a way to translate his camera moves and his camera angles to a mostly digital world. So, John Knoll. Uh, next up is the Chief Creative Officer and Senior Visual Effects Supervisor at ILM, who started there in 1986 as a technical assistant and a motion control camera operator. He's been nominated for visual effects Oscars on episodes one and two and Rogue One. He also helped create the story for Rogue One, served as its visual effects supervisor, and as one of its executive producers. He's one of my favorite humans. Please welcome John Knoll. Hi. Hey, I'm, I'm one of those people that was inspired by Star Wars to come into this industry. So I thank all the guys that uh, were responsible for the original, because that's why I'm here now. <clears throat> feel actually a little bit of a fraud up here in this company, but uh, it's too late now. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the most striking big picture differences between the atmosphere of visual storytelling in the late 1970s and today is how you approach going into a shoot that contains a large number of visual effects. The technology and techniques of the 70s put considerable constraints on the way shots had to be staged for the shot to work, um, or for the shot to be able to succeed. And by that, uh, I don't mean just whether or not it looked good or not, whether you could even put the thing together at all. Um, for example, at the time of shooting on New Hope, there was no method that allowed an artist to add a shot to a live action plate that had been uh, operated, um, adding an element later, because you couldn't duplicate the camera move. And it really wasn't until the, the motion control that it was developed for post work on Star Wars became available on set that you could do that kind of thing. Uh, another um, constraint was um, you know, the way that uh, blue screens were extracted and optical composites were put together, you had to be very careful about how you shot blue screens. You know, they had to be very saturated, evenly exposed, uh, and very bright. Um, and that took some care and time to do. And so that meant that you couldn't, um, there wasn't a lot of room for improvisation there. You, know, you had to really carefully think out what you were doing. And you can see that's pretty consistent throughout the picture. And George adopted this style book partly so that he was able to tell this story without it feeling jarring, that you could intermix visual effects into the rest of the live action, and it all sort of flows. So he was constrained in that way. And I'll show you, uh, that's not universally true in the movie. There are a few shots like this that contain a significant uh, evolution of composition over the, the duration of the shot. But these are really the exceptions. And you'll see there are also pretty far away from any of the opticals. You know, they're in the middle of otherwise non-effect sequences. Compare that to the situation where we find ourselves in today. Uh, a huge amount of technological development has gone into tools that remove technical and stylistic constraints so that the techniques, so the techniques adapt to the storytelling style of the filmmaker rather than impose a storytelling, uh, storytelling style onto the filmmaker. And while Rogue One was meant to flow right into New Hope, meaning there's a, you know, a gradual introduction to familiar locations, characters and vehicles that you sense you know, what's imminently coming, uh, Kathy was pretty clear from the beginning that this film should establish its own style book in terms of mood, tone, genre, and cinematic style. Gareth Edwards, our director, uh, came to the attention of Lucasfilm from his indie film Monsters, which has a, uh, sort of a, a very realistic, verite, almost documentary style to it. We had a test shoot about a month before principal photography started where uh, the crew and I all got a taste of what that was going to be like. And Gareth's shooting style, he prefers to, to only give very general uh, blocking uh, to, to the actors and uh, encourages them to find what feels true to them. And then, as he's his, often his own camera operator, as you can see, 
uh, likes to go into the shots, um, looking through the finder, and find those compositions rather than you know, deliberately plan them through storyboarding or, or previs. And I think he's got a real genius for you know, hunting around and finding those, those compositions that really tell that story well. But the consequence of that is that um, um, you know, we, we don't really know what we're going to be shooting until we're actually shooting it. <laughs> uh, Gareth also pretty frequently took um, uh, advantage of the fact that we were shooting digitally. And uh, you know, the, uh, the mags on these cameras uh, could shoot a 40-minute run. And so it was pretty, pretty uh, common that we would shoot uh, at least 20-minute runs where Gareth would uh, shoot four or five takes of across five or six different bits of blocking all in one long run without ever cutting the camera. And that meant that uh, a lot of times the first time I was really seeing what we were going to be dealing with in post was while it was actually being shot, and there really wasn't an opportunity to, to go make adjustments for the next take because... You know, that was it. And that, that, may, that may sound like a, uh, a bit of a frightening situation, but uh, I really liked what we were getting. It was, looked really good, and I thought that that uh, sort of documentary verite uh, thing in Star Wars, in this fantasy world, was going to be a really cool thing. So uh, my mind started uh, going to how do we support that, encourage that, and, and inject that style into things that were going to be starting from a live plate. We had a space battle. We had sh shots of ships in transit. And I wanted to make sure that, that uh, Gareth was getting that style into those shots as well. And you know, if those shots started as uh, storyboards or previs, you know, there's a style that comes along with working that way. So what we thought uh, uh, was that this was a really good application for our uh, virtual cinematography tools. And so the approach that we took was we uh, animated some of these scenes um, in the computer in a way that, uh, that ran in real time, and then on our uh, motion capture volume, gave Gareth this virtual camera so that he could go into the scenes and do the same thing that he was doing on the, the live action set, where he could fish around to find those compositions. And you know, sometimes while you're watching this, you can kind of sense the thought process of, oh, what if, the, you know, what if we go a little closer here? Um, and so that, that was done in a lot of these... Um, uh, vehicle in transit and, uh, and shots that didn't start from a live plate. And it, it really did uh, give us a, a, a nice um, sort of seamless flow of the, of the shots. There was no stylistic break when we got to these. Um, and one of the fun things about this is that Gareth could walk out of a session like this with uh, a bunch of dailies uh, that he could just then take into editorial like it was any other live action. And so it's, uh, it had a, a really nice creative uh, uh, appeal to it. All right. And, uh, and that's that. Thank you. So a few people that I, I've skipped just for the brevity of this episode, but are still incredible people to listen to, were Bill George, a model maker who now uh, has been working even on Resistance for the Colossus and Galaxy's Edge, uh, as well as Bruce Nicholson, who was very, very technical about how they did the initial passes for each shot um, for the original Star Wars, which was incredible. And then Rachel Rose, who worked on Rogue One, and she kind of reiterated uh, and went into more detail of what John Knoll was initially talking about, which was Gareth Edwards' uh, way of moving around the set, and especially in a digital environment. With that all being said, we'll move on to the last panel of the evening, the, the main attraction of the event, obviously for me, which was Ben Burt and Marsha Lucas sitting down and talking about editing. And not only talking about editing, but talking about the difference of editing uh, in 1976 for the original Star Wars to then Mr. Burt editing the prequels in that very digital way. And it was uh, an absolute delight and an absolute treat. And I'm so glad that I was able to hear it in person. And use the handrail. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so uh, today's editing room is a familiar-looking place. It looks like every other workstation in production, post-production, or banking, or at, at home. It's it's not a distinctive-looking technology. And the Avid has become the universal tool when it comes to cutting together a contemporary Star Wars film. And at the heart of that operation is the random access to all the media you need, the picture, the sound. In the case of Rogue One, there were 
55 terabytes worth of files that were available uh, instantaneously for the editor to access anything that had been gathered or captured for the production. But, but editing is much more than just assembling the shots, uh, the best take. From the script, uh, thousands of creative decisions are involved. Thousands, you, you spend your days timing out dialogue, evaluating performances, the flow of motion, the composition. And a Star Wars editor is forced to think uh, outside the box often and, and, and is urged to, to, to experiment. Um, when we started doing the prequels, we made the transition from film to digital, and we had the avid uh, visual effects package on board. Well, George was really went to town on this. In other words, uh, he urged us editors to uh, into a whole new era uh, of thinking about how to put together scenes. For instance, if, for example, uh, we had changed the storyline and we wanted to eliminate that character, uh, from production on the left-hand side of the screen, where we could just cut and paste the background and take him away, and now you had a very different scene with two people isolated, a different way of, of telling the story. Uh, if uh, Count Dooku, uh, just before he starts a fight, you really wanted him to raise his arm and throw an energy bolt, but uh, he didn't do that in the original production, well, the editor would go through, find an arm from somewhere, and then you could paste that in early. <laughs> And then uh, your videomatic crew could come by and clean it up a bit, and you, the flow of action would continue. And if you could uh, add an arm, why not a head? You could take a performance from a, a closer angle, and if things worked out just right, you could uh, shrink the head down, shrunken heads, and you could place it into the two-shot because you really wanted the line to be delivered uh, from that particular angle, and so on. And during the prequels, we, we really first, uh, as editors, grappled with uh, injecting the digital characters into the action. We had all walking, all talking characters that had to interact with our main live action characters. So you'd cut them out, track in a box, fix the eye lines, time the dialogue, do all the things you'd normally do in order to uh, make the story, once again, the continuity flow. And, and since we were manipulating objects so much in the editing room, naturally that feedback loop led toward production. Well, why not just get many of these objects isolated anyways uh, and not have a, a background environment? And uh, since we're going to be combining digital characters and, and we want choices later on of, of moving things around. So this is how we worked. And this is what became the normal operating uh, procedure in the editing room. And uh, of course, the thing is, this are, these are technically horrible, they're sloppy, they're all, but they're cinematically correct. And, and we could get away with it because we knew that ILM would fix it. Okay, it's nice when you own your own visual effects company. And uh, the thing is that George really showed us that every shot in the movie was potentially a visual effect, whether it had been storyboarded or in intended as so, but you had to think in those terms. Now. Editing was not always this way, digital <laughs> editing, okay? Um, the thing is that film editing started way back in the silent era. It was actually really fully developed during it. And the, and the role of the editor always was to take the camera, what came from the camera, break it down into individual shots of film, organize them on a shelf, and then uh, your editor would come in, in this case, Charlie Chaplin cutting his own film, and all he needed was rewinds, scissors, some glue, uh, some sunlight against the windows to backlight the shot, and he could assemble his movie. And for decades, films were done this way, and of course, the thing about the editing room is that this is a court of final judgment for everything that's captured in a movie. <laughs> it either gets in the cut or it's cast off to the editing room floor. When sound came along, it got a little more complicated for editors because now you had a separate role of sound uh, and, pic and, and picture, which matched each other, but they were physically two separate roles. You had to work what was called double system. And, and tools such as the Moviola developed in which you could grapple with this, keeping things in sync, but still splice and cut. And so for decades, editors were often looked like this. You'd be in a room with your mechanical machines surrounded with a pile of film at your feet. Nearby, there were your assistants who were filing, logging, and refiling every frame of sound and picture that was recorded for the film so you wouldn't lose anything. And that is the world that brings us to 
Marsha, <laughs> and <laughs> August of 1976, uh, up at Parkway House to stand in Soma. So Martha, Marsha, the thing is, how could you edit a Star Wars film without a computer? <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> it's quite a different process. Right? It's very, very, very different. And so I only have five minutes to talk about my experience on the film. <laughs> so I'm going to get right to the scene that everybody loves, which is the end battle scene. Right. A very physical task, and I'm going to take you down a little road. We had a droid Olympics every year <laughs> to prove who could wind film fast enough, <laughs> who, who could lift the most amount of mag stock. And there you are, Marsha, I don't know, speed splicing, or you're doing something. I don't right, know I was, did. one of the events was we were blindfolded, and we were given a roll of film. We were given the moviola. We needed to feed the moviola in, and when it hit 60 seconds, stop it. Hit the brake yeah. and stop it. Well, the person that got the closest 60 seconds won, and I don't think I ever won, but <laughs> it, was, it was fun. It was really a fun event. The idea being great editors have a great sense of timing. Yes, timing in, is. Internal timing clock. and pacing is and, uh, mucho important. Do you remember diving for smidgies? Oh, yes. Okay. But right. I'd been an assistant on several features, and so I knew every frame of film. And if somebody needed two frames for their cut, I had an envelope on my desk, I scribed in code numbers, I could get it to them in two minutes. When you cut uh, in those days, you lose a frame, mm -hmm. but they'd fall to the floor, but some days <laughs> you put the, the, the shot back, you'd have <laughs> that frame. You have to have that frame. Only one work print at any one time, so only right. one cop cut of the film at any moment, so wow. That's really critical. Uh, I think what you did was cutting was a little more cautiously, a little more thoughtfully, because you would consume the materials as you went. But let's get back to the Death Star battle. That, this is something, a very special uh, challenge for you. Let's okay, talk about well, the Death Star yes. battle. Well, when we got back from London, we were editing up in Marin County, and George was flying down to ILM because he'd been in London filming, and they wrapped the filming, and he would go down every Monday morning to ILM in Van Nuys, and he'd come back on Friday nights. And then on the weekends, we'd run the cuts that we were working on. And then a couple weeks later, George came to me and said, you know, Marsh, ILM needs to have the end battle cut. It's got the most visual effects, and they need to get working on that. And would you please cut it? I said, sure, I can do that. I can cut the end battle scene. And I had the shooting script to work from. I had um, all the rebel pilots and the and the Death Star pilots in their cockpits against blue screens, green screens we used, I think. And then I had um, the Admiral on the Death Star who was physically watching the battle, you know. And then I had all the rebels in the rebel war room watching the battle. And then, of course, I didn't have a storyboard, and I hadn't seen any real visuals of what anything was going to look like, but I did was given a 16 millimeter reel of about six minutes of all the black and white footage you could get from World War II movies. So there were dogfights and there were bombing runs and there were planes blowing up and there were planes crashing. And I had all this black and white footage, it was 16 millimeters, so I had to blow it up to 35 millimeter. And then I began cutting and I realized right away I didn't have enough planes, not right to left, not left to right, not enough explosions. So I reprinted this black and white dupe about five or six times so I had enough planes, enough POVs, and you can kind of see in some of the shots. Yeah, the same Stuka gets blown up four yes, times. Yes, it gets blown up four times. <laughs> and that's and that's the way I and that's the way I worked the the, the scene. Now in the script, when Luke goes down and makes his trench run, he uses the computer and he misses the shot. The shot doesn't go in. So he goes back up to a dogfight. He has to go down again and make a second run. And on the second run, of course, you know, Obi-Wan tells him to use the force and he puts the computer away and he's going to make the shot this way. So while we were looking at this scene with the two runs, we all agreed that it was too long. <laughs> it was definitely too long. Luke had to make one run, and he had to have Darth Vader come in to you know, chase him down, and then we had the rebels on the thing, and then we decided, you know, the thing that was missing was a time clock. 
like how much time does Luke have to make this shot before something horrible is going to happen? And so we had the earlier footage from the film where the Death Star loads up, you know, and gets ready to fire, and they shoot um, Princess Leia's planet. They obliterate Alderaan, Princess yes, Leia's Alderaan. planet. Anyway, so we had all that footage of the Death Star gearing up, and we had Tarkin watching what was going on. So we added that time element. So ILM comes through once again <laughs> and has a beautiful shot of the Rebel planet with a kind of a kind of a graphic showing that the Death Star is getting ready to line up to make their shot. So it's seven minutes and counting, and then later it's three minutes and counting. And so we needed, I needed, I needed to have that tension so that can Luke make the shot before Darth Vader's going to shoot him out of the sky because Vader's on his tail? And can he make the shot before the Death Star is going to obliterate the rebel planet? So I made it all work. I cut it all together. Everybody agreed it was working. And ILM was very pleased that they didn't have to do half of the special effects shots that happened when he made two runs. <laughs> now he only had to make one run. So we saved some money. <laughs> yeah, not bad. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was really, really, really critically to me, critical to me when I was editing the scene that it has to be a surprise when Han Solo comes flying in, he blows Darth Vader out of the, Darth Vader goes spinning out, and Luke makes the shot, and the, and the Death Star explodes. And that moment had to be so critical and important that when he comes in to save the day, the audience would go, yeah, yeah, yes. And I, I, think, I think I made that happen. I think I accomplished that. You I did. Think I you did, Mark. <laughs> The pacing of that sequence, the intercutting of the four different locations is, mm -hmm. is astounding. And I watched it develop at the time. And I, mm -hmm. I used to see it without any sound. And even the, just the visual pacing of it, the way it was put together, mm -hmm. was uh, what you and George was, did was uh, just, just fantastic. And it shows you that you can have a script, but the, the real artistry of a movie is what the editor does. You know, it, I mean, the, the technology is not as important as the person using that technology. And, and whether it was a moviola or an avid, I mean, it's it's really the person behind it, Martian. You 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 accomplish so much. You you and your fellow editors, uh, Richard Chu and Paul Hirsch, got it got it Oscars for editing that film. Is well deserved. And uh, also, I, I found this picture in an old Lucasfilm yearbook, and it was you had been given a pair of editor's gloves. You had to wear gloves back then, right, to keep the grease off the. Yeah, we film. had to keep it clean. And on them it says for the smartest pair of hands in the galaxy. So <laughs> that's how we felt about you. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, oh, goodness. Those, those were treasured times for me. Uh, you know, putting sound effects in was a joy and, and that kind of stuff, you know, so. Well, you're not getting away without me talking a bit about the sound. The sound in Star Wars. <laughs> okay. Very, very simply, how many characters in a movie don't have facial expressions. Chewbacca didn't have a facial expression. Darth Vader didn't have a facial expression. R2-D2 didn't have a facial expression. 3PO didn't have a facial expression. This man had to create all the language. <laughs> this man had to create all the language for all of those beeps and boops for, for R2-D2 that gave him a personality. Of course, he did the explosions and the, and the spaceships and, and everything else, but he just did the most amazing sound work that just elevated the whole scene. And then in the end, when I saw it compiled and finished and the special effects were in, the sound was in, John Williams' fantastic score, the music was elevated it again, and it was like, we did it, we made it work, we did it, we did it, we made it work. It took a lot, took a lot of people, took a lot of talent to make that come to fruition. Thank you, Marcia. Where you are more than a galactic innovator. <laughs> You're a galactic hero. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, good. Thank you. So after the event concluded, 
it was kind of a, a weird rush to for some people to to meet some of the people. Um, obviously, you know, Marsha Lucas kind of left pretty early. Um, ben Burt left pretty early. John Knoll left pretty early. Uh, but I was able to kind of <laughs> finagle my way. Uh, I had a pretty close seat as it was. And very briefly, I was able to meet Mr. Burt, which was wild. I was able to meet uh, Mr. Knoll, which was wild. I was able to tell him uh, that I grew a goatee because of him growing a goatee in that episode one uh, beginning documentary, which was an interesting choice to make for sure. Uh, and he took it relatively well. And then after that, it was kind of just a, a whirlwind. Um, I actually ran into Mickey Herman right there on the floor. I, I'd never seen her in person. We'd only talked on the phone. And I saw this woman, and, and she looked so familiar. And I just I just asked, like, this is a stupid question, but are, are you Mickey Herman? And she was so sweet and so nice and uh, so appreciative of not only the time that we were able to take earlier this year, but also kind of this this remembering of, of the Star Wars crew now all these years later. Another a great thing that happened was at the very, very end, I was able to, to meet the special surprise guest, which was Gareth Edwards, the director of Rogue One. And that was honestly very surreal. We, we talked about my work now. I, I didn't even lead with I love Rogue One as everyone else did, but I kind of led with, you know, I'm the VP of marketing for Fangoria. And of course his eyes lit up and we, we talked a lot about him growing up with Fangoria and that brand. And uh, it was a great experience overall. And so after all of this, um, I actually had met up with a friend, Ricardo, uh, who was also from that Blast Point Super Chilled Group Facebook page. And we, we sped off and he, he drove me to LAX and I was around probably 1am. <laughs> I slept in LAX for a couple hours, got up, got changed with whatever clothes I could fit in my little messenger bag and got on a flight at 6 a.m. and, and got to work in, in Dallas at, at 12 p.m. And that was my that was my adventure in LA, about 16 hours total. It was a it was an incredible adventure and I'm so glad I was able to do it. Because I really don't know when that'll ever happen again. Anyway, thank you for humoring me and listening to this and, and letting me rant a little bit about about this experience because I can only tell my girlfriend so much about why I booked a ticket to LA for one day. We're taking a little break in terms of some guests. I have some lined up, just timing hasn't worked out, so I'm going to backlog a few more and then, and then launch again. So just bear with me on that. If you have any ideas for guests or any ideas for, for episodes that you want to hear, definitely let me know. But I've really appreciated the outpouring of support and listens and nice messages and and everything because it really it really keeps me going and, and really makes me excited to to continue to do this because this is what I love obviously and and I love that more people are, are wanting to share in it so uh, until next time stay tuned leave a review and, and may the force be with you.